Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Abby. And this episode is all about statistics. Stats, stats, stats. <laughs> in the spirit of September and the start of the academic year, we wanted to do something a little different and thought it would be good to have an overview episode covering some of the common statistical methods, approaches and terms we often use in body image and appearance psychology research. And so I had a chat with our resident statistician at CAR, Dr. Katerina Gentili, and I'm so excited to share it on the podcast. I can't wait to listen. Before we introduce Katty, please could you tell us a little bit more about what you spoke about? Yeah, of course. And as a note, it's one of our longer episodes, but I'm sure you'll agree it's so incredibly informative and engaging. So we didn't want to cut it down any further. But what we have done is included some timestamps in the show notes. So there is the option to listen to the episode in chunks if that works better for you. Anyway, we started by talking about Cathy's role as the data analyst at CAR before transitioning into talking about some key concepts that often come up from normal distributions to statistical significance and power, as well as comparison of means and linear models. We also started chatting about some of the limits of statistics and we got into the problematic history of the field as well. Oh, that sounds very interesting. I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's fascinating, though a little um, upsetting, I guess, but maybe also not surprising. Anyway, in the interest of time, let's introduce Katty. Sure. So Dr. Katerina Gentili, or Katty, has an international background in quantitative health and psychology research. After gaining experience as a statistics consultant for medical studies, she started working as a data analyst and data manager for the partnership between the Dove Self-Esteem Project and the Centre for Appearance Research here at UWE in Bristol. Katty is passionate about high-quality, human-orientated, ethical data analysis, and she strives to apply her technical skills to gather and analyse data that will improve people's lives. Her current motto is, from people to data, from data back to the people. Wow, I love the motto. I wish I had a motto. I know, I know. I love that she has one. I was like, what could mine be? I have. I actually need to think about it. I also wonder if it's Professor Paul White's influence. I feel like he's got a motto. Oh, really? We yeah. have to find what... I know, I I, we have to look it up. Um, but anyway, let's hear our conversation with Catty. Catty, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on the show for our Stats, Stats, Stats episode. I'm excited, as you can tell. Yes, I can tell. I'm so happy to be here. This was a long time coming and I think it's going to be good. Oh, it's going to be so good. And I think we're going to learn so, so much. But before we launch into a hardcore conversation about stats, I thought we would ease ourselves in gently and talk about your role as a research fellow in applied statistics. So tell us, what is it that you do? So my role is um, being the data analyst and data manager at CAR. So in a nutshell, I take care of handling and analyzing all the data that we collect from our studies. Uh, specifically, I work with the team uh, in the Dubs of the STEAM project. So when you hear sentences like, our program was successful at improving body image in girls all over the world, I am the one finding out um, that results in the data. Okay, good. So 
how did you get into the role? <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> um, it, no, long story short, it's because Nadia encouraged me and I'm internally grateful for that. Um, but the long convoluted story is that, well, I was already a car when the position came up. So I eventually applied. And as a kid, I always loved math. It was like my absolute favorite subject. I wanted to do that at uni. But as many um, women... <laughs> Potentially in STEM, I was discouraged um, as it was considered a bit of a boys club. So I decided to study psychology. I studied in Italy, in Padua, and I actually really enjoyed it. So I was very, very lucky with my second choice. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to go to the Netherlands to um, run like some experiments and gain experience in research. And that's where I was left with this massive data set with like more than 300 variables that were all described in Dutch. Um, and I didn't even know what the software to analyze it was. Uh, I had no idea about anything because unfortunately in Padua at the time we had no statistics course. Oh, no way. So I had to start from scratch and like buy a book. <laughs> and I spent so many hours studying it on my own. And then there was this thing called Stats Help Desk. Uh -huh. in the university where I was studying in Nijmegen and I would spend there every single Friday and this angel of a statistician helped me every step of the way and I came out of it alive and surprisingly I quite enjoyed it like I enjoyed learning about this kind of uh, math oriented discipline um, and then I thought okay we need to we need to patch this up I can't I can't keep going like this mm -hmm. so I signed up for a research master program in Maastricht uh, which was 50% of the hours for statistics and um, so that's where like I got my you know my stats up to the game uh, and actually then from there I met a researcher who was going to come uh, work at CAR then I came to CAR to do my PhD, then the position to become a data analyst comes up. My friend Nadia tells me, apply, apply. And here we are. And I think this is the job I'm enjoying the most so far in my career. So thank you, Nadia. Oh, Kathy, I love that. I mean, I feel like you're giving me far too much credit, but I'll take it, I'll take it because, but I also, I just think that you are so suited to the role and I just couldn't imagine our team without you in it. So it's, it's amazing. I'm so glad you did it. And I actually remember that conversation we had when we were talking about you applying, but I feel like partly I remember it because we're having pistachio gelato by the harbour side. Indeed. Indeed, pistacchio, pistacchio, oh, gelato. Yeah, wait, pistacchio, pistacchio. <laughs> is that right? That is correct. Okay, not fragile. Not fragile. <laughs> Another time. Um, Another time. <laughs> okay, I love it. Um, okay, so you said that you really enjoy stats. And so from someone who still identifies as slightly scared of statistics, can you tell us more about what you like about the role and statistics in general? Yeah, of course. So I see working as a statistician in a research group as glorified gossip. That's literally what I enjoy about the role. So um, being a data analyst is great if you are someone who really enjoys like logic exercises, numbers, 
problem solving details but most importantly if you're really really curious and if you are kind of prone to get hyper fixated on a task because you want to know what the answer is and I love learning about people which is why you know I studied psychology in the first place so applying stats um, to understanding what is going on for the mental health of the participants that take part in our studies is inherently super interesting. And also, it's, I often feel like I've got the best seat to find out what's going on in these projects. I'm literally the first one to know. And I think that's a huge privilege because there's so many people who have worked so hard to create our programs. And I, I get to work to be the first one to find out what what's happening there so I think that's super cool and it's really stimulating that's awesome and what I love about what you do is one that you take all the stress away by doing the stats doing the what <laughs> to be the hard and stressful part two you explain things so so clearly and make it feel a lot easier than it is and so that's obviously why you're on the on the show today to do that for our audience as well and then three is that you present the data in a really visual way so when you do the graphs and I think maybe you do this particularly for me but it's all color-coded it's beautiful I appreciate it why not color code in a beautiful palette if you can like why not why would you not take that extra step to just make it a bit more candy colors like it doesn't have to be in a scale of grays like what is this masculine energy no <laughs> no we're gonna bring the femme energy into the stuff <laughs> I know and I love it I love it and I just so appreciate you for doing that and doing that going that extra mile because it just makes it so much more pleasant to open and approach so thank you okay so I have one more question in this section on like just understanding more about your role so could you tell us what a day as the team statistician looks like yeah so it starts with coffee always forever every day we don't do anything before that (laughs) then then we then we start then we we get back into the world Uh so a, a short espresso Italian coffee it's the strong Italian coffee. It should be short, but actually the more I grow up, the more like it kind of, I can use the Americano cup, but with the Italian espresso. It's a dangerous game, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> okay, so we've had our coffee then. Yeah, we had, we've had our coffee. We are alive. We're in the world again. We opened the laptop <laughs> and uh, usually my day is a mix. Um, of different tasks and the proportion of this task really uh, depends on the time of year and on the different projects that um, I'm going to work on because I've got this great position in the team where I work across projects Mm -hmm. so again glorified gossip I get to know everything about what is going on in the different teams so I'm, I'm having a great time. So I might start off uh, taking some time creating the data analysis plans mm-hmm. for um, the very early phases of a project. So this might mean that I meet with the project lead and I talk to them about what they're planning to do for their experiment, for their RCT. And then together we figure out 
what is feasible in terms of statistics. And this is a really good pr process because the stats will influence the design and the design will be influenced by the people who work in the field to collect our data. So for the research agency, it's great because you see different expertise, uh, skill sets all come together and you can really see how all the different bits of the research projects are interconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, then um, other things I could do are power analyses. Um, so these are analyses that find out how many people do we need to mm -hmm. test uh, and find the answer to the question that we want to answer. Um, so I might, you know, again, talk to the project lead at the very early stages of a project and they'll tell me what they want, I'll tell them what I can do, and we find a solution together. And uh, other things I do is that I help junior researchers clean the data. Mm -hmm. So this is um, kind of like a very important bit of the statistics pro process. And it's a bit of a repetitive task, but you get to learn a lot about how, you know, and the analyses work and what's the basis. And um, so it's something that is really valuable for someone who's starting to try and do because it doesn't require like a super advanced skill set, but you learn lots. But I support the process. So, you know, if we're missing data, if the data is not matching, mm -hmm. and if the rows are all messed up, because when, when we get the data set, it's not all nice and clean, it's human data. So humans are messy, the data sets are messy, and we need to sort them out. And then the pinnacle of the role is hypothesis testing. So once we have done the experiment, we have cleaned the data, then it's time to test the hypothesis. And, that, and this is the bulk of my role. So each project has got an hypothesis and I'm there testing it, uh, usually concealed. So I don't really know. And, you know, uh, I just know what the result of the test is, but I don't get to know whether that's a positive or a negative result till the very end. And maybe we can talk about that, why that is at the end. Yeah. And yeah, then I have to write it all up and make pre-graphs, which is probably my favorite part <laughs> of the whole thing. The pretty graph, I'm happy, I'm content, close the, close the laptop, get some wine, end of day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All in a day's work. Thank you. That's really nice to, to hear you talk that all through. So I want to transition and zoom out and talk about the role of statistics in psychology. So a big part of what we do at CAR, and then I guess in psychology more broadly, is testing interventions. So example research questions could be, does this lesson improve body image? Does this game help reduce appearance-based prejudice? does this video reduce the internalization of societal appearance ideals that kind of thing so can you explain how statistics helps us understand if the intervention works or not of course so and um, before we get to statistics let's take a step back and think of the design that this kind of study would have because yeah. every statistical process is literally mapped onto the design of the study yeah. so if we have a program, let's say we have um, a video game and we want to understand if this video game is improving body esteem or not, we might put together what's called RCT, randomized controlled trial. And if you're listening and you're maybe working in medicine, uh, you might have already heard this term because it's a method largely used in medical sciences. Um, what we do is that we recruit uh, as many people as possible 
and we randomize them. So we randomly allocate them to two groups. One is going to be our intervention group and the other one uh, we call control group. And the experimental group will play the video game. The control group might just wait it out or they might play a video game that is not about body esteem. Then before everything starts really, we measure their body esteem. And this time point is called pretest. We measure body esteem with a questioner and how we get that questioner, well, that is a whole other episode. So we can't, we can't do that right now. And um, we measure their body esteem and then we ask them, okay, let's play this video game. Some play our video game, some play a random video game, which is kind of has no effect on body esteem. Then right after we measure their body esteem one more time, that's called the post-test. And very often, if you want to do things really neatly, we measure their body esteem one more time later on to check whether these effects that we might have found are maintained over time. And that time point is called follow-up. And sometimes we have one follow-up, sometimes we have two. It's really challenging to get follow-ups with humans because, you know, we forget, we don't open the email, um, we go on holiday, but it's great if we get at least one follow-up point. So uh, what statistics helps us understand is that if there is a statistically significant difference between these two groups and between time points, and most importantly, between groups across time points. So in a sentence, I've packed so much uh, of statistics, especially what is statistical significance, maybe we can explore a little bit more. Um, but what we get to understand is, is that if there is a change that is associated with the belonging to either the experimental group and the control group. We will have an hypothesis that's called hypothesis one, that the experimental group will improve over time. And the counter hypothesis is hypothesis zero, that there's gonna be no change over time. So we'll test whether our hypothesis is true and whether it goes in the direction that we have hoped, because, you know, God forbid, yeah, there is a change, but they're actually going really badly. <laughs> yeah, they're feeling um, about their, their body. And, and actually, to use your example about the video game and whether it improves body esteem or not, we have the our intervention one or our experimental condition where we are hoping we've designed it to improve body image. And that's that's the hypothesis, right? We want that to improve body image. And then with the other one, if we do have an alternative game, our hypothesis, our hope is that it doesn't. We've chosen it because we think it's not going to improve body image because it's not related to body image in any way. But we don't know that until we've done that testing. Exactly. Do you remember when we found out that puppy videos were helpful for mental health? Yeah. We had yeah. used puppy videos as a control condition. And then it turns out that um, puppy videos on the internet, you know, kittens and dogs are great for short-term improvement of mental health. That's yeah. serendipity there. I believe it. And then the other example of that in body image is that quite often in experimental studies, the control condition is pictures of nature. So mm. pictures of appearance ideals and then versus pictures of nature as your control condition that you're hypothesizing is not going to make any difference on body image. 
sometimes that has an effect as well and so yeah that's the the parallel so anyway that's we, we could go off on a, on a huge tangent there <laughs> but I want to follow up and ask about some of those statistical concepts that we'll go through so I'm going to Try and choose some of the big ones. So you mentioned statistical significance. So let's start with that. What do we mean? What is it? Right. So statistical significance is the big star of the show. Um, <laughs> although we shouldn't let it take too much, too much attention. Okay. Statistical significance refers to the claim that a result from the data generated by testing or by our experiment is likely to be attributable to a specific cause. So um, it's the degree um, by which uh, an observed relationship is probably due to being assigned to one of those groups and not by chance. Right. To break it down, if we see the body esteem of the intervention group um, being higher at post-test than the control group, what is the chance that that difference is due to the fact that they were part of the intervention group and not by pure randomness, by pure, you know, case. Is case an English word? Yeah, yep. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so usually we tolerate um, 95% chances I'll say again, usually we tolerate 95% of possibility that this relationship is due to belonging to the intervention group. Mm -hmm. This means that we leave a 5% chance that the effect that we see is purely due to random causes. This translates into the famous or infamous p-value. Mm -hmm. So when we say that we tolerate a 95% um, significant, we're looking at a p-value that needs to be smaller than 0 0.05. Mm -hmm. So 5% chances that what you're concluding is uh, wrong is quite a high chance if you're talking about millions of pounds invested in a study. Mm -hmm. So usually we keep the level of significance at 99%. So we tolerate a 1% chance that what we're saying is not correct. Mm -hmm. and, and as we start to see, statistics is always related to probability. It's never 100% true. And we'll talk more about this later on. Yeah, that's such a good point. Okay, so how about power? Mm, yes, not the book, the statistics <laughs> power. Both great concepts though, <laughs> right. So by definition, statistical power is also called sensitivity, is the likelihood um, of a significant test detecting an effect that is actually true, that when there is actually an effect. Mm -hmm. So this concept, you might um, already start to think about this, is related to statistical error, specifically to um, false negative and false positive error. And I think that now, overall, as people, we know way more about false positive and false negative after COVID than we ever did before. That's so true. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
the concept of statistical power has an inverse relationship with the false negative error. So um, a false negative error is when you get a COVID test that is negative, but you're actually sick. And this is obviously problematic because if we keep going with the COVID example, you might go out, you go for dinner, uh, you think you're negative, but you are actually positive. That is because the test that you did did not have enough sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So if you get a false positive result, you have unlikely fallen within that 5% chance that we talked about before. We were saying that we would tolerate that 5% chance of saying that there is an effect when there actually is not one. That 5% is what we accept in terms of chances of getting a false positive. So depending on the area in which you're working, that 5% might be way too much to tolerate. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe it could be just fine. It depends. For example, for pregnancy tests, um, false positives are way less uh, dangerous than false negatives because you rather um, you know, get a false positive and then go get more analysis at the hospital than get a false negative and like tra-la-la and then turns out you're pregnant like a month later. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really depends on, on the situation where you are. For COVID, it's better to get a false positive again. And for our studies, it's not better to have a false positive because we want to make sure that if we claim that a program works, it, it really does. So we tend to be a bit conservative mm -hmm. and um, accept more false negatives than false positives. Yeah, that's really helpful. And we often refer to false positives and false negatives as type one and type two error, right? So yes, exactly. Type one error is a false positive and yes two error is a false negative Woo. yes i i have to say i forget this every single time despite seven plus years in this area i always have to like wait what was it again yeah, way around in it so if you see those terms come up or hear those terms come up that's what it's about right exactly yes okay great so we've spoken about statistical significance and we've spoken about power what about normal distribution? Mm, yes. Are you familiar with the story, The Little Prince? Yes, that's a French book, isn't it? It's a French yeah. book, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but at, at some point, there is an illustration um, of a snake eating um, an elephant. And in the story, yeah. there's this interaction where they say, if you ask someone what the shape is, if they say it's a hat they're one kind of person if they say oh it's a snake that is eating an elephant is another kind of person and I would add there's a third type of person who would tell you that that is a normal distribution <laughs> so it looks a bit like a bell mm -hmm. and if you're trying to imagine the shape as you listen to the pod and the definition is um, a probability distribution that is symmetric on the mean and um, it's also called Gaussian distribution. And um, the data that gathers on the mean is the most uh, frequent one. Yeah. It's very interesting that we call this normal distribution because as we talk in our day-to-day -day life, uh, we often, often, often use the word 
normal. And I always find it funny that in a normal distribution, yes, you accept that what's more frequent is in the middle, but naturally you're going to have diversity and extremes that might be less likely, but are naturally there in the normal distribution. So yeah, that's just a little reflection point. Yeah, that is such a good point. So normal doesn't mean just the mean, right? Just the middle. Normal means that you you have variety. Exactly. By definition, you have variety. And so, for example, if we say that in a group of um, children between the age of five and 10, we have a normal distribution of body esteem, we are uh, expecting uh, lots of these children to gather around the mean score of the questionnaire that we're using, and then to see um, progressively less and less people gather around the extremes. So uh, extremely positive body esteem, uh, extremely low body esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the main assumptions for the inferential statistical testing that we run for psychology studies. Uh, it's very important to always test that you meet the normality distribution assumption. And the truth is that very often we don't because not everything in society is normally distributed. If you think of how polarizing certain topics are, you might not have a normal distribution. And I'm not, um, you know, jealous of colleagues in political sciences right now because they're not getting any normal distribution. They're getting two polar opposites. And I mean, good luck with that. (laughs) I'm not going to move fields anytime soon. Yeah, that's interesting. So you can have data that's skewed one way or the other, or as you say, it can be completely polarized. So you almost have two, two curves. Exactly. Yes. And we, as a field um, don't necessarily always test that we actually have that normal distribution it's usually a normal distribution of residuals but that's for another time and and so we go ahead and do our tests and we draw conclusions and maybe we have not checked if we could have run that test in the first place Mm -hmm. because most of our tests apply to data that is distributed like that. Yeah, so the assumption is that there's a normal distribution to allow you to do the test. So just to regroup, so we're talking about our interventions and the statistical concepts that apply. And so I think maybe let's cover two more. So let's go through comparison of means and linear models. Should we do that? So let's start with comparison of means. Sounds good. So uh, we talked about all these concepts, but then what are we actually doing with the data that we have? So the two, let's say, building blocks of what we're doing um, tend tend to be comparison of means and linear models. Uh, Comparison of mean is is exactly what the name says. You are comparing two averages. And going back to the concept of statistical significance, you are testing whether these two means are significantly different. So if you have a mean of your uh, intervention group, a post-test who has done, um, you know, so if you have those two means, one belonging to the experimental group who has played with the video game that we gave them, Mm -hmm. and one mean is belonging to the control group who played with um, a random video game, you wanna check, ooh, 
are these two means different due to the fact that they belong to two different groups? And if they are, is this different statistically significant? Mm -hmm. And so this is the building block. And the most simple test that you can do is called the T-test. And then from there, you can build very complex castles. Mm -hmm. um, you can compare two independent groups, like in this case. You can compare the same people to themselves in different points in time. Mm -hmm. For example, is my body esteem today higher or lower than the one I had yesterday? Mm -hmm. um, and then you can do even more complex things, which is what we tend to do uh, for our studies, where we compare both groups that belong to different conditions and the time effect. So we check that these two groups differ from one another, between one another, and we also check whether these two groups have changed over time. So comparing their levels of body esteem across different time points. So was the control group better off at pretest? Was the experimental group uh, worse off at pretest? All these kind of questions. And there are some complex tests that we can run with statistical packages that allow us to get one snapshot of all these different relationships at once. And then we can go dig and analyze each of these comparisons one at a time. It's really cool. Um, and then you asked me linear models, right? Yes, linear models. Yes. So um, did you see that tweet that said, learning Y equals A plus B times X in high school was considered useful and I never used it in my life? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen, if I've not seen that, I've seen lots of similar ones of like just equations and you're like, what? I disagreed 100% with that meme because that's literally the equation that learning high school that I use on a daily basis. Uh -huh. So I thought it was super useful. Yeah. Um, so basically a linear model um, describes a continuous response variable as a function of one or more predictor variables. So what, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> we have an outcome in our case that keeps rolling with body esteem uh, and it's continuous because um, it's a continuous score that can go from one to five and have any sort of decimal um, values uh, attached to the unit value. Um, and then we have a predictor and maybe we have a continuous predictor too. It could be uh, let's say BMI, do people who have higher BMI in our society more likely to have low body esteem? So this is like a very simple example of a linear model, in which case, if you imagine, you know, the x-axis and the y-axis, you would put BMI, which is your, although, of course, side note, BMI doesn't mean anything, it's a terrible measure. Don't ever use it. This is just an example. <laughs> the model will turn out not significant because BMI doesn't mean anything anyway. Or there's other factors involved, right? So it, it might turn out significant, but then we need to account for weight stigma, et cetera, et cetera. So exactly. Let's say weight stigma. I think that's what I was trying to say. Let's say weight stigma. We measure weight okay. stigma and we hypothesize that people who experience weight stigma will, as a result, have less body esteem or will be less likely to experience body esteem because they also experience weight stigma. 
So we want to test this relationship. It might come out significant. It might not. We don't know. So we see weight stigma, our predictor, on the x-axis. And body esteem is our predicted variable on the y-axis. Mm -hmm. So imagine you have this uh, plain space. And the data is almost like if you have some rice and you just like throw it. <laughs> and then all the different bits of rice are distributed in the space in some way. And each bit of rice is a person who experiences a certain amount of weight stigma and a certain amount of body esteem. And you have a lot of variety, right? You might have someone who experiences a lot of weight stigma, but because of personal factors, they also experience great body esteem. Mm -hmm. Someone who maybe is the opposite, doesn't experience any weight stigma, but for personal factors, uh, is got terribly body esteem. And then loads of people in the middle. And you're trying to understand, is there a pattern here at all? So the linear model means that you are assuming that you can squish all this rice into a line without losing too much information. Uh, this line can go up, uh, this line could go down, this could also like kind of stay flat, but then we got other problems. Um, and then just sorry to interject, but when we're talking about it going up or down, we're thinking about it on that y-axis, x-axis. So we're talking about diagonal lines, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, we're talking about diagonal lines. And so if our diagonal of rice goes mm -hmm. up, um, you'll see in the numbers that you get in the output, a positive beta. The beta is the angle that your diagonal of rice creates with the x-axis. Mm -hmm. If the diagonal of rice goes diagonally down, so from left to right, I'm very Western and I'm assuming we all read from left to right, which is again, a very biased assumption. So from left to right, the diagonal goes down. In that case, you will probably see, you will likely see a negative beta and that indicates that your diagonal of rice goes down. So what does that mean in concrete terms? And um, if we see a negative beta and the diagonal of rice goes down, you found that the more people experience weight stigma, the less likely they will be to experience body esteem. And that's, you know, maybe that, that was what we had hypothesized. Yeah. And, and then we find that the model is significant. And that means that that uh, diagonal that we made with the rice um, is a decent enough approximation of the distribution of the data. Because remember, initially the rice was all scattered around and we thought, can we simplify this in a line? And it could be that the model is not significant. And what that tells us is like, ah, no, no, sorry. That's, that's not that diagonal. That's not a fair simplification of what the data is doing. And I think we come to a very important point these kind of models are always, always a simplification because when we simplify data like that, for example, we're losing that person who was experiencing a lot of weight stigma, but was also experiencing a lot of body esteem for the reasons that are inherent to their own story. Yeah. So statistics is great. It gives us big picture thinking, but we always lose detail because it's reductionistic, right? by default. <laughs>
could you talk us through a couple of other common study designs that we use in psychology and and the stats that apply there? Yeah, of course, we have loads of different designs and like types of studies. And so we can actually build on the example that we just talked about, the linear model. Sometimes in psychology, we test complex models and you can see these as mini theories. For example, um, Nadia, we recently tested a different version of the minority stress model. When we talk about a model in psychology, we are thinking of different psychological elements and we make hypotheses on how these relate to one another. So I could hypothesize, for example, that weight stigma um, predicts lower body esteem and that this might be influenced by other factors like education, uh, like um, social economic status and by uh, neighborhoods, for example. And I go ahead and I want to like test this mini theory. And I do this with more complex linear models. So the linear model we talked about before was the simplest possible. But again, it's a building block. And so you can use more complex tools like structural equation modeling to test multiple relationships between psychological factors at the same time. And that's super cool. I think that's one of my favorite analyses, to be honest. Uh, although I shouldn't have a favorite. <laughs> That's really cool. And we worked on a study together where you did structural equation modeling. So I'm glad it's your favorite because it's complicated. <laughs> it is a bit complicated, but I think it gave you a lot of insight. And also it was that first analysis that I had to do back when I was given that massive data set. So I learned it through, mm. you know, blood sweat and tears so now it's like you know I would either absolutely hate it or love it and I think it's a bit of Stockholm syndrome and I I now love it (laughs) yeah that's funny isn't it when you first do something and you really don't like it or it's really challenging and then it becomes something that you really enjoy because you've overcome the challenge Mm, yeah exactly and I think you kind of get to understand it more because Mm. you, you you had no idea so you had to work out every single step of the way and I think that's also one of those things where yeah it's one of those analyses that I enjoy helping others with because I know the pain (laughs) I understand 100% but I know also that they can do it but yeah we have other designs as well and other tests so I'll just give you a few examples because otherwise we could stay here for like a week Uh and we might for example be uh, interested in getting a snapshot of uh, different groups just at a one point in time so that could be a cross-sectional design and we might compare to means just in that time slot or maybe we want to do something more exploratory and like understand what is the relationship between a bunch of different um, symptoms and we have no preconceived idea of how they could relate to each other and that could become a network analysis, which I think is super cool. And I would love to get to do it one day. And, and then another big one that we have in psychology are meta-analyses. And as the name says, it's an analysis on other analyses. It's very meta. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are super useful because if we have um, a question like, oh, did the programs uh, to improve body esteem designed since the 90s up until now work at all? We can test their testing to check whether overall that literature 
all those studies did have an effect or not. So it's like a summary of the summary of the summary. So these are all kind of things that we do in psychology research when it comes to stats. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, meta-analyses are very helpful because it just collates everything all together. Mm. So tell me then, so we've spoken a lot about what stats allows us to do. What are the limits of statistics? What can it not tell us? Oh, there's so many limits. And I think that you need to know all the limits in order to do good stats. So first off, I would say um, stats are often not transparent. So if you take, not to throw shade on anyone, but if you take a paper and you are comfortable reading statistics, you'll often find out that some factors are not reported. Some information that should be there to give context to the whole result um, are not there. And so, because a lot of people are not comfortable with statistics, this means that there is a tendency to have published studies that don't have solid statistics. And those studies will influence uh, the research and potentially even policy. And this is because we have a bias towards numbers. We see numbers and one, we get a bit scared and two, we give them credit. Mm. Kind of by default, it's like, oh, it's numbers. So it must work. In advertisement, you see it so much. If they want to sell you toothpaste, they might put like some numbers falling in the background just to say it's a scientific toothpaste. Mm. And we buy into it. Even scientists buy into it. So I think, we need to start by being skeptic and not assuming that whatever we read that is numerical is true and accurate. Plus in psychology is even more challenging because we are not measuring body esteem in this case directly. We, we don't have a thermometer that tells you how much body esteem this person has. It's all based on self-report and people might not feel comfortable answering certain questions. They might not understand the question. Maybe they never thought about it. Maybe the person who designed the questionnaire didn't ask the question properly. So we have like so many layers of bias and error that separate us from the concept that we want to measure and the actual concept. Mm -hmm. Um, So this translates statistically in extremely low effect sizes, meaning that when we find that significant effect, it might be very thin, very small, uh, very weak. And, and so it's important to not assume that just because something is significant, then it must be absolutely true for everybody, everywhere, all the time, forever, especially because we have very low effect sizes in psychology compared to biology and physics. Like statisticians who work for biology and physics always tell us, oh, you guys got it hard. Those effect sizes are small it's challenging to interpret the results like what is what is difficult and papers that don't give you nuance are probably leaving something out and then I would say last but not least we said it a little bit before as well and the average person doesn't exist and statistics works on averages and probabilities and if we are trying to get details about someone's story that is not a statistic Um, statistics can support policy and this might for example support a specific process this could be oh 
uh, this demographic is more likely to develop an eating disorder. So we might create a program that lets them access an eating disorder treatment quicker than someone with different demographics. But we can't take this to the extreme because things can change over time and people are not always falling into that big chunk, that big simplification. We will probably get most of them, but we'll always leave someone out, especially if the study was not done properly. And the rigor that we need to keep to do something properly is insanely high. Um, so yeah, I think on this, it's very important to like match maybe quantitative methods with qualitative methods as well, and not get that biased on the fact that if it's a number, it must be objective. Objectivity is a, is a slippery concept. Yeah, completely. And I think, as you were saying, like qualitative methods help us tell a story, right? So it's always then you come back to the research question. What is it that you're wanting to find out to work out what is the best method for that particular question? So, yeah, lots more to say on that, but let's let's move on. Because I actually think this is a nice segue when we're talking about the limitations of statistics to talk about the darker side of stats. And some of this I've only discovered very recently particularly in relation to scientists who invented a lot of the popular methods or, or techniques, have, oh, how do I put this, a, a, a dodgy past, um, to put it softly, I suppose. And I should say a special shout out to friend of the podcast, Professor Bryn Austin, for uh, alerting me to this in the first place. But I wonder if you could say a, a little bit about that. Yeah, well, dodgy past is an understatement. It's more like white supremacist past, like full on Nazi past. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's terrible. And I think this should be taught in schools way more. And it kind of feeds into what we already mentioned about bias and how, you know, assuming that what's numeric is objective is extremely dangerous, is extremely dangerous and hurtful. So let's, uh, let's name drop, shall we? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So um, some of those scientists who are considered the fathers of statistics, also the gender bias, um, were also full-on supporters of eugenics and have full-on explicitly supported the Nazi agenda with their uh, eugenic aspirations. And unfortunately, this is something that encompasses several disciplines. Like genetics is, you know, another of those disciplines that has that terrible root that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, it needs to be acknowledged because um, that root of course, is in the past, but it can still affect us because the mistakes that were done can be done again and if we're not aware of what they are. So in particular, Dalton, Pearson and Fisher, uh, who you will recognize these names because these are names that are given to some of the tests that we use. And I think, you know, it'd be nice to change them already. And um, shout out to IBM, change the names. Um, so they, they were extremely implicated into the um, progression of the statistics method as well as eugenics. For example, Galton funded the Galton Chair in the National Eugenics at UCL, where uh, they also were part of the statistics department. And 
this chair was first held by Pearson. And Pearson is the guy who invented, who well discovered, invented, it's always difficult in mathematics, Pearson correlation. Uh, and he was a professor in statistics and a professor in eugenics at the same time. And after him, Fisher followed. Um, Fisher also giving name to lots of the tests that we use today. And a large extent to, of what they did in statistics was to push the eugenics agenda. Like Pearson himself, during his retirement speech, uh, spoke approvingly of the Nazi plans. Uh, this was, I think, in 1934. Uh, in that same speech, he made the explicit link between eugenics and statistics. He said something like that if the Nazi agenda was not going to work out, uh, well, that must have been because they were not familiar with statistics and mathematics enough yet, mm-hmm. and not because they were not determined enough, which is like, it's, I don't even know how it's defined. It is, I don't know, it, it just, it's horrifying. It's horrifying that this kind of information is not out there as a massive disclaimer. I completely agree. And I think it's why we're not taught this in our research methods courses in psychology or social sciences more broadly, because I think it's it's really important context. You need to understand where all of these things come from. And my personal act of rebellion in this situation is that I don't, or I try to not use the word regression, which is attributed to Francis Galton, who according to Google is Charles Darwin's cousin, I, incidentally, I found out. And this was, a, again, a suggestion by Bryn Austin. And so to use to just say linear model, logistic model, etc., rather than saying like linear regression model or logistic regression model. Yeah, and yes, that's why the, the linear model that we were talking about before, you'll often find it in softwares under the name of regression, but it's a it's a it's an explicit decision to not use that term and call it linear model instead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's hard though within the context of psychology because everyone uses regression like it's so yeah it's so widely used and I think because people don't know this backstory yeah exactly exactly well I learned lots um well both you know working with you and like indirectly getting the uh, shout out from Bert Austin but also I read um a book by Angela Saini and um, mm. it's called Superior where she uh breaks down to an incredible level of detail all the uh, dodgy uh, eugenic past of genetics and statistics I highly recommend it it's a bit of a challenging read because it's like to the dot is so detailed and but it's just so educational and after you read that there's no turning back Um, and if you work in science and you apply the scientific method in general I think there's just just so educational because um, I think it's important to realize that the tools that we have are really can can cause a lot of harm if mm. used inappropriately. For example, you know, we talked about comparing means and, you know, just a moment ago we were thinking, oh, um, is this group uh, developing more body esteem than this one? Did the video game work? And it's so, you know, positive and for like a positive aim, but those very same techniques were used to compare people that were classified in racialized groups by white men um, to 
uh, compare so-called levels of intelligence completely arbitrarily to confirm eugenics agenda. And the results that were obtained were then twisted and adapted to whatever they actually wanted to prove, which is why when we do our studies, it's so important that the statistician is concealed from which group is what, because if we want to obtain something, we'll find a way to read it into it, to read the data in a certain way. Um, overall, we should really be sharing these informations with our colleagues and with our students and learn from the past mistakes in which these statistical methods were applied for um, very, very harmful and despicable objectives. Um, and I think overall, being really cautious when it comes to assuming objectivity and um, because that will lead to harmful and biased conclusions and um, numbers are not objective and especially numbers in psychology are definitely definitely not um, objective we talked about the importance of being concealed when analyzing data and yeah not uh, stressed enough and a really fun fact about how bias works for these, um, you know, um, statisticians and eugenists. Uh, we often say in statistics that correlation is not causation. And it's quite interesting that there's a bit of a debate on whether that is still the case, uh, whether that should always be the case, but that's another story. I think overall, it's fair to say that a correlation is not a causation because we cannot measure you know, body esteem directly, we can't control exactly how the processes work. So it's important to have that limitation in mind. Pearson used to say, yeah, correlation is not causation, except when it came to support eugenics agenda, then correlation was causation. He was a smoker though. And so he went back to claiming that correlation was not causation, when discussing the fact that smoking increases the chances of developing lung cancer. You know, interesting. interesting. Mathematicians are humans. Statisticians are even more humans. <laughs> and if not controlled by other uh, colleagues, by a system that supports the reduction of bias, mm. these tools themselves are not helpful. They're just tools. It's like, you've got a hammer. If you don't use it properly, is not helpful if you use it to hang out beautiful piece of art that's mm. great but it can be used in many different ways it's not inherently good or bad it can yeah. be bad that's such a good way of putting it and like this has been such an informative episode and we've covered so much and just to echo your point it's like we should really be learning about some of this background in our research method psychology courses as well so this has been super super informative and i wonder if we can close out with a quick fire round of some key concepts. Let's start with, can stats ever tell us if X causes Y? Short answer, no. Long answer, it can give us uh, the probability that X is associated with Y, which means that if we can access um, other data, uh, then we can get really close to understanding causation. Uh, but on its own, without other 
um, information cannot do that. And in psychology, unfortunately, we tend to rely on statistics a lot. Uh, while in other fields, you know, we could put something under the microscope and observe what, uh, you know, the movement in our sample of cells is we can't do that in psychology we can't see the body steam growing in a person although that would be super cool we're not there yet <laughs> um so no on its own it gives us a likelihood associated with a certain set of conditions and if the study is done terribly well we can get maybe close to potentially rightfully assuming causation but we're never there. We can never 100% assume it. We can bet on it. It's different. Okay, that sounds good. So another, I think, a key question to ask the statistician, when I'm reading or when one is reading the results section in a paper, what are the key things to look out for? First thing, not panic. Second thing, I would look at the sample size. Uh, I would check if they say that they've done a power analysis. If they say that, if they don't say that they've done a power analysis, I would already start being very skeptical. Then I would look at the p-value, is what they want to test significant or not. And I would look at the effect size and at the descriptive statistics to understand the relationship between variables um, you know we were talking about the diagonal going down or going up the descriptives the means can give you an idea of that and then I will check that against what they say in the conclusions and what they say is it 100% supported have they missed something out is there something dodgy going on and then and I would also check if they concealed the statistician and if they're willing to share their code and their uh, data sets because mm -hmm. that increases credibility even if you don't understand something immediately the fact that they're willing to share what they're doing is is already a good sign like I would trust um, a study like that way more yeah and there's definitely a move towards open science within the field more broadly so mm. completely agree so you mentioned their effect size I know you also spoke about p-value but we spoke about p-value quite a lot earlier in the conversation. So can you tell us what effect size is? Right, so the effect size, substance, is the size of the effect. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so if you have a significant p-value, then you look at the effect size, because right. a relationship might be significant statistically, uh, but maybe the effect size is really, really small, meaning that that association is not really strong. And you don't really interpret the effect size if the p-value signals a non-significant test. And however, if you have a significant p-value, you always look at the effect size because the p-value without the effect size it is not enough to interpret a result. So sometimes you might see that, especially older studies, it doesn't really happen anymore now, do, did not report the effect size, which uh, now uh, I think as a scientific community, we have made lots of progress and we would see that as dodgy. So. Okay, so you really need the two in tandem, right? So you want the p-value and the effect size. Yeah. Okay, great. So next question and I want you to cover this because I always love how you explain it what's the difference between moderation and mediation 
Ta -ta -ta -ta. <laughs> this is what I learned with blood, sweat, and tears. So, yeah. you know, be my guest. So, in four words, a mediator is a connector, a moderator is a booster. So, okay. statistically, when we test those models for theory, we talked about the fact that those linear models can become very complex and imply lots of variables. That's when moderation and mediation take place. And um, so, a moderation implies a so called interaction effect. So, we said the moderator is a booster. Uh, let's um, have an example. So, if you're trying to test the association between the busyness of a work schedule and the probability that people will go to the party. Maybe you hypothesize that the busier the work schedule of a person, the less likely they will be to join a party at nighttime after work. Um, but then maybe you consider extroversion as a factor. You say, oh, wait, hold on. But the more a person is extroverted, the less strong this association will be because maybe someone who's super extroverted will push um, you know, their energy level to go to the party because they really enjoy it. And the more someone is introverted, the more the association between work schedule and uh, going to the party will be strong. Like if my work schedule increases even that, by a minute, I am not going to go anywhere, absolutely. So that's a moderator. And it increases the volume of a relationship. Yes, I, that's how I always think of, of moderation, is that volume dial. Yeah, so it's almost like saying, oh, is this particularly true for some people? Or is this particularly untrue for some people? So the busyness of a work schedule uh, related related to uh, chances of going to a party is particularly true for people who are really introverted, but maybe particularly untrue for people who are really extroverted. So that's how I see moderation. And mediation, we said, is a connector. So it explains the process through which two variables are uh, related. So let's give an example. I think it's always easier to start by that. Uh, we might hypothesize that the uh, social economic status of a family uh, will influence the um, academic achievement of uh, their children. And, and then we might then further hypothesize that yes, this relationship exists, but it exists because of a connector in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and that connector in the middle might be uh, the amount of time that uh, these parents have spent in education, in university, in school in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we talk about uh, a connector, we are saying that uh, the variable A is connected to B, and B in turn is connected to C. And a perfect mediation is when if you take away B, A and C are not connected anymore. And so it's very difficult to decide whether you want to test a moderator and a mediator uh, because um, it's really telling of how you see the world. It's telling of how you see the phenomenon that you're trying to investigate. And there's not really 
uh, right or wrong. It depends on what you're assuming on the data that you have from previous studies. And it's really easy to get confused between the two. Yeah, but I think you explained it so well. And I like that moderator equals booster, mediator equals connector. Cathy, this has been absolutely incredible. I feel like I've learned so much. I'm going to have to listen back and take notes for my own personal <laughs> development and learning. Thank you so much. It's a very different kind of episode, but I think super, super informative. And we've covered a lot. Um, mm. So it's going to be a good one for us to refer back to. So um, thank you so much, first of all. And then second of all, I can't let you go without asking you our very important cake question so what's your favorite cake well Nadia thank you so much for having me I had a blast talking about all things statistics and yeah of course the cake question the most important of all I have to say uh my favorite cake is probably millefoglie that's a classified as cake wait I don't know what that is it's I think in English you might call it more like millefoglie something like that um, it's loads of a bit more oh my pleasure so imagine like loads and loads of layers of um filo pastry loads of them and then in the middle a uh, very fluffy light and um, custard mixed with whipped cream and we call it chantilly ah Yes, I think I actually, I think I can picture it. I'm going to have to Google image it. And I think so I do think I, I know, but that, yeah, that does sound delicious. And wait, is there something else? Oh, yeah. On top, then you have like uh, icing sugar and it's all really light and it's not too sweet, but it's really crunchy and it has different textures. And sometimes you have it with a bit of strawberries on the side. So that's probably my favorite. I can take the workload of an entire millefoglie on my own I am not scared of it and yeah now when I go get a millefoglie so okay. gotta go get some <laughs> sounds delicious I want to come with you and get some because I think I'd love it yeah we should do that yeah we should make that a plan so Katty, thank you so much again for joining us on the show really really learned a lot and it was great chatting with you thank you Nadia that was amazing I didn't think an hour of tarts could be so engaging, but obviously Katty can do that. <laughs> I loved all of the examples and analogies, and I think it's going to be a really useful resource on the podcast too. Yeah, I think so. We'll also pop a transcript up soon, so look out for that. So that's all we have time for for this episode, but a very, very big thank you to Katty for sharing so much with us. Thank you for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review. It only takes a minute and it helps other people find the podcast. <laughs> Three, two. Bye. Bye. <laughs> These boys are awkward at the end. <laughs> <laughs>